Imperfect Action. This is Brock Edwards, and today's guest is Dr. David DeLong. Dr. DeLong, uh, why don't you just introduce yourself a little bit, tell us who you are and what you're about. Hi, Brock. It's, it's great to be with you today. Um, I'm an author, speaker, and consultant who's built his business around the intersection of the impacts of information technology on skills, roles, and relationships and how people, how people work with technology and how it impacts their lives. I've written uh, four books uh, in, in recent years, and um, I make my living today mostly as a speaker, but I started, started off as a journalist and was a ac- bit of an academic researcher, but I'm definitely oriented towards, uh, towards organizations and the challenges managers, managers and executives face. But I have a huge heart and a huge interest in individual career development. I worked at Harvard Business School for a while, I'm redesigning their career development course. I wrote a book a few years ago called Graduate to a Great Job, Make Your College Degree Pay Off in Today's Market. And I wrote a paper which is available on my website, which is, uh, um, the paper is called, Buddy, Can You Spare a Job? The New Realities of the Job Market for Aging Baby Boomers. So I'm kind of a boundary spanner between individual career development needs and and organizational needs and the challenges they face today in dealing with critical skill shortages. That's the issue that I'm most interested in. Uh, and of course, with the COVID-19 um, recession upon us, you know, there is a whole new set of challenges that we're all trying to figure out. So when you said you deal primarily with IT and the effect on skills, roles, and relationships, I was going to ask you what that kind of means in, in, in real life, but you, you, you got there by talking about individual career development and skill shortages and your focus there. So, and I love the title, Buddy, Can You Spare a Job? Uh, it feels very relevant today. So tons of questions, a lot of different places. I, I kind of want to go here. So I guess just in general, when we talk about individual career development, uh, let's let's go there because if you, we all have jobs or we need jobs, yet we all want jobs that will grow with us. What do people need to know, need to be able to focus on when we think about individual career development? Right. Well, careers today, as everybody knows, are are, are changing. the The market is changing. There, there are so many different conflicting forces in play. Uh, for example, the market and organizations desperately need your talent. It, you know, if you have a certain set of skills, if you're an engineer, if you're a, a, a an experienced salesperson, if you're, uh, uh, you know, good at um, at any kind of operations, good at particular aspect of, of relevant technology. The challenge with technology, of course, is it gets obsolete pretty quickly. So you have to be continually learning. But careers are, are so there. there's a great demand in the marketplace for good people with skills. But at the same time, the market is changing so fast and it's so demanding of people. I wrote a blog post for Harvard Business Review a couple of years ago called Learning Overload, the New Productivity Crisis. And the point is there's so much to learn in any new job. 
that employers are really cautious about who they hire into a job because they know that person is going to other they already need to have certain set of skills or they're going to need you're going to need to learn them on the job so for individual one of the most important things for individuals today in terms of careers is to be mindful to be aware of where you're headed and make sure you're not headed into a career box canyon that by that i mean a situation where you're working in a job, going along, not developing new skills, um, and getting older, you know, by older, I mean over 45 or certainly over 50, and having skills that are pretty common that can be replaced by a 35-year-old. So you have to be continually upgrading your skills and, and learning constantly and looking out at the field where you what you're working in or what you want to work in, say, what new skills do I have to learn? Because continuous learning is, is such an important and frankly, not very well utilized um, key in career development today. You know, Chip Conley, I don't know if you're familiar with, with Chip. Um, he talks a lot about the irrelevancy gap increasing and his thought there is that people are living longer and yet business-wise things are skewing younger and so you know kind of that time period where you're no longer relevant has gone from a couple years before retirement to maybe even spanning a few decades and you know he talks about the concept of modern elder which is basically you know the older workers uh, boomers late generation x um, and the skills that they have that the younger generations don't have and being able to provide that. So when you're talking about, you know, kind of increasing your skills so that you don't get in that career box canyon, and I love that analogy, by the way, what are some of those skills that those in the older generations have or could be working on developing that help, you know, avoid becoming irrelevant at kind of a pivotal moment in their life? Right, great. Well, um, obviously, if you're in a particular field, you know, a particular uh, profession and you have some special um, knowledge of operational history of in your business, knowledge of customers, of course, that's always key and relationships. There's, there's one of the most critical kinds of knowledge is we call social capital. That is a relationships. You know, it's one thing, you know, to to be able to reach out to people. It's another thing to get them to reply to you. And if you have that kind of reputation and relationships with, you know, people in your field or that are important to the organization, then you're much more valuable. So those social skills, um, technical knowledge, again, operational knowledge, uh, um, just how to get things done effectively and efficiently, which younger employers may not know because they don't know the shortcuts. They don't know where the band-aids are and all the hidden, the the skeletons in the closet, so to speak. Uh, At the same time, one of the things I've seen in my research with older workers, and I wrote a book called Lost Knowledge, Confronting the Threat of an Aging Workforce. So I'm very passionate about this issue of knowledge loss and the knowledge that older workers have that's valuable, but isn't always valued by the organization. And we have to be frank about that. But one of the things I see in my work with older workers is they do think they can skate by without learning new technologies, 
right now I'm having to master pivot in my own business, you know, to go, I'm a speaker. That's how I make my living keynote speaking. But now I'm having to master and improve my ability to do online keynotes and breakout sessions and workshops so that I'm mastering new technologies like StreamYard, a new webcam, obviously Zoom, everybody uses Zoom now, but they're just all these technologies. You have to be open to learning those new technologies so you don't drag your feet and appear to be someone who's sort of obsoleted about because of their lack, unwillingness to learn and use new technologies. Well, and in there, uh, David, you, you were talking about relationships, you know, and, and so when you talk about getting things done, my mind goes there. And I think most of the time we think about tasks, you know, I get things done because I'm good at doing tasks, but right. organizationally, what strikes me is that a lot of the people that are good at getting things done are the ones who can pick up the phone or send an email and create a result just from that. They don't have to <laughs> work their way through the organization. They know who to contact. They have those relationships. And so that is a skill that, you know, all of us could do better at. And, you know, there's the, the, the dreaded word networking that always, you know, get makes people get their hackles up a little bit because no one likes the idea of networking in and of itself. And yet relationships are so important. So from your experience, how can people build that network? How, how can they expand kind of that the sphere of their relationships? Right. Well, I'm a huge believer. And I think one of the, no matter whether you're 25 or 55, one of the most critical tools in relationship building is what I call informational interviews. And that is having conversations with people to learn more about their field, the, the problems that, that you need to be aware of, the getting their advice and direction. Those are magical words to be asking people you know, in an email. I'd love to get your advice and direction on X. Um, I'm thinking of exploring Y, um, a certain thing. Um, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this. And at the same time, so scheduling, in, again, in this current era right now, most of those are unfortunately are going to be Zoom calls or, or just phone calls. Uh, and, and trying to schedule brief, and that's an important word in this approach, brief conversations to exchange ideas about whatever the topic is. Are you trying to learn about a new career opportunities? Are you looking for a job? Are you looking to find people who might be hiring? Um, and so reaching out to people to have these conversations, but always being aware when you have them, you want them to be a two-way street. You want to lead with how could you help this other, this person? You know, I'm having a lot of conversations. I'm glad to share with you some of what I'm hearing. I've been doing this myself. I've been on what I call a listening tour the last three months. I'm trying, like everybody else, I'm trying to make sense of this, um, this new recession and what's going to happen going forward. <clears throat> and what the the level of uncertainty we're facing. So I'm reaching out to all the executives I know by email saying, I'd love to catch up with you, you know, just hear what you're hearing. And I'm glad to share with you what I'm hearing. So think about, again, and if you're 25, you're trying to explore career options, be having conversations with, you have many more people who are happy to have these conversations than you realize. They could be friends of friends. People want to help you, and, and particularly if it doesn't take a lot of their time. 
and they think you're on the ball and you're paying it, you're really paying attention and you're taking notes, always take notes. Uh, so the, that conversation piece is so important. And if you're in a job and you're trying to build your skills or build your relationships, love to, you know, I'd love to learn more about what you're doing. Uh, and, and, and again, I'd love your advice on some problems I'm wrestling with. So those, that's just a thought. You can see I have no passion for this. No, that that makes sense. And and I've been surprised, you know, just in my own life, the number of people that when you ask them for help are more than happy to help, more than happy to take 15, 20 minutes out of their day to, to offer up some some thoughts and advice. And I think that often holds us back. We're afraid, oh, we don't want to bother them. And yet it's very flattering. Usually when people reach out and say, hey, I'd love your expertise. I'd love your thoughts. Um. So here, here's so another thing, you know, so not just the networking, the building relationships, the reaching out to people, but just even, so you talk a lot about skills gap and um, skill shortages. How do we identify what we're good at? I, I mean, a, a lot of folks, some, some people absolutely know what they're good at. And then we've got people who don't realize they're bad at things and, you know, they're running full steam ahead. I'm thinking more of the people who may be great at things, but just don't recognize that greatness. Or or if you ask them, they couldn't tell you what it is that they're really good at. Right. Well, one way to do that is to ask other people in your life who who know you. Um, For example, my wife was helpful in pointing out to me, she said, David, you know, I really admire the way you've reinvented yourself throughout your career. And I have to continually, and, I, and, and it's funny, I don't think of myself as reinventing myself. I'm not aware of that as a strength. Uh, and, and she had to point it out to me. And, and now though, as I reflect on it, I say, yeah, that is kind of true. And so really talking to people you work with, colleagues you work with, in a humble way, say, look, I'd love to get your thoughts. What, is it, what value do you see me bringing here? What are, what are some of my strengths? You might ask your boss. Uh, you might ask just colleagues. You might ask fam- friends. People will have observations. And it's kind of, it's a hard question. I'm not saying this is an easy ask, but, but it, it, you may be, you'll be surprised. I've been surprised throughout my career at what people see value in what I bring. When I wrote this book, Lost Knowledge, uh, you know, I, I tend to think, okay, I wrote a, a pretty good, pretty successful book, uh, important, been well-reviewed, but people continually bring it, come back to me and say, boy, that book really influenced how I think, or it's done, it's, it's done this. And they point out to me ways that my work has been valuable to them, uh, and, and what I bring to the party, you know, for example, one client said, David, you, you have perspectives in multiple industries. I work across manufacturing and healthcare and aerospace and government. So I, I do have a lot of perspectives and they, they valued that and they pointed that out to me. So really asking people and then looking back at the trail of the things you felt, another second thing to do is to look back at the trail of your successes. What have you felt have been projects, jobs that you've had that have been most successful and, and look at what skills you needed to do that. 
for me, you know, book writing, I'm, I can look and say, look, I have a track record that says I'm a pretty good writer. I'm, a, um, I'm good at synthesizing information from a lot of places. And I love to do interviews. And, I, and that's one of the strengths my clients see is I customize everything. So I'm always having conversations with clients and people in my audiences so I can understand their issues. So uh, that's how I've been able to identify mine. But you can do that by asking and ref- asking people and then reflecting back on your successes and what you felt particularly good at. Good about, good about. Well, you know, in there, you, David, you had mentioned uh, reinvention. And I find that topic really fascinating because, you know, the myth is that you decide what you want to do when you're 18, you go to school for it, and you do that the rest of your life. And I have not met that person yet. Right. Um, you, you know, it, it, it doesn't look like a linear graph. It looks like spaghetti thrown on the wall when you think about the career path for, for most people. And a lot of that is accidental. How do we do that intentionally? Because when you say reinvention, to me, that's a very intentional word. Sure. It's a, that's a great point. And, and it, it is in some, somewhat intentional, but it can be intentional and not be, you know, a, a strategy you're, you're obsessing about. Um, it, the, the biggest thing, Brock, is really listening to the market and listening to other people and what, what's needed. Um, you know, you've been doing something and you're having trouble going forward in that area or you're wanting to change direction. So the real, the, the key always comes, almost always comes back to having conversations, uh, conversations with, with people about how, uh, what they see, what, where the, where the business, their business or um, society is going and what are the needs. Um, and I'll give you an example. My daughter, I have a 27 year old daughter who's graduated from college a few years ago and she was a uh, studio art and health policy major, but she's figured out that a key in her field, she's in public health is data is understanding how to work with data visually. So she has immersed herself in online courses and classes on data visualization. So she isn't changing her whole field from health healthcare, but she has been reinventing herself as sort of particularly skilled in developing graphs and you know graphic um, objects to 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 communicate data findings about you know HIV or COVID or some. Um, public health issue that that um, her organization is is working on. So um, reinvention involves is listening to the market and finding out what's needed, then learning, then being willing to adapt. You've got to take on new skills, and it doesn't mean you've got to get a go back to school and get a master's. You might have to take one on- online course or a couple, or do a series of interviews or buy a few books and read about up on a topic to get smart. And then you have to, then you have to actually make a jump. You have to be willing to, to, to sort of go off the edge. It's like jumping off the, the diving board when you're just learning to swim as a kid, you know, it's scary. It's you're jumping into a new world, but you have to do it. I once went from being a, a senior editor of motorboat magazine on a Friday afternoon in shorts to taking on a new job as technically a management consultant um, working in New York City and at CBS 
um, interviewing executives about their sales training program, wearing my new Brooks Brothers suit on a Monday morning. So that reinvention was from being a magazine editor to being a consultant. And boy, I did not know what I was doing, but I had I had good mentors and I had to I had to be willing to make the leap. And a lot of times you'll make mistakes, you know, in your new world. Um, but you're you're going to learn and you're going to adapt um, and you're going to look back at some point and say, wow, I can't believe I made that change. Now, that is a huge leap, David. So I, I mean, and I know this is your, your own personal situation and obviously won't apply to most of the rest of the world. But I think many of us have made big leaps like that. Uh, for you, kind of what inspired the leap to, you know, give, give up boats and shorts and change into Brooks Brothers? But uh, how did you manage that transition? Um, <laughs> well, uh, I mean, I'd been doing the magazine editing for a number of years, uh, and I, I loved being an editor, and I loved working with writers, but I was frankly bored with the subject. Um, and I, there's only so many ways you can write about boats, believe it or not. <laughs> any topic that seems dreamy, I was in my 20s. Um, any topic that seems really uh, magical, you know, after a while, when you're in it long enough, it becomes, okay, I've done that. And I wanted a new challenge. And so, uh, you know, I went into, how did I manage that challenge? That's that transition. It's, first of all, I got the job. I, the people believed they were bringing my, my skills, my writing skills. I thought about what were the skills that I had in, as a magazine editor and they're, you know, researching, interviewing people confidently and writing and synthesizing that information and writing it up. And all I, what I was doing was one thing to think about is what skills do you have today in your current environment or have you demonstrated in the recent, in the past and what, how could those skills translate into a new environment? And I took my writing skills into the, our client was CBS, the TV, you know, we were developing training programs for their sales management department, their sales people. And I took my writing skills and research skills into that environment. And the truth is, I didn't know much about business or anything about business, but the truth is those issues, the business issues are not that hard to learn, but I had the core writing and research skills to apply them. And so some of it is just jumping in and listening a lot too. I didn't, you know, talk a lot. I listened a lot and asked questions. So those are just some thoughts about how I manage that transition. So I, I am curious what, and I'm probably overthinking this whole situation. I just love that leap. And so um, you, you were able to think through your skill set that set you apart. Um, and, and help them understand what what it is, because I'm guessing they didn't recruit you. I'm guessing you went you went after them, though I could be totally wrong there. Well, yes, you know this is a great example of of networking. Um, the The man who was my new boss was had been a Harvard Business School professor, and he was had left Harvard and was off um, running his own consulting businesses. And his son was my college roommate. And I just had stayed in touch with Matt over the years and said, what are you doing? You know, just, you know, this is what I'm doing. And Matt and his father had this idea, hey, this guy, they've hired a bunch of MBAs, Harvard MBA types to do this work. And these MBAs had some business knowledge, but they didn't have the research and writing skills. 
that I had to bring when they found that was disastrous. So they said, let's try a guy who, um, who has research and writing skills that w- who may be short on the business knowledge and bring him in. And uh, so, so in this case, frankly, that job, and I look back on my, or my jobs throughout my career, and m- the majority of them come from connections, not necessarily strong, you know, a college roommate's a strong connection. And uh, I didn't get the job just because I was his roommate, because they never would have hired me if I didn't have the skills. But that was the introduction. Um, I was thinking, um, I recently, uh, a few years ago, I had lunch with a guy just to give you a, a different example of making that transition. And I had lunch with this guy I met at a, a workshop. And, uh, and he told me about, and he was a workforce development expert, had been in that field for some years. He said, you know, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, there's a guy named Jason there, does this work. And I had a touch base with him. And he just, they just vaguely knew each other. I reached out to this guy, Jason, and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce is one of my major clients now. And it just came from a lunch. You know, that's what they call a weak tie in the relationship world. You know, it was not like a college roommate. So these relationships and transitions can come from pretty unexpected places, but you've got to reach out and connect with people, you know, for them to happen. So one of the things in re- recruiting and in a pa- past career life of mine, I, I was a recruiter. And one of the things I noticed is that there seems to be a couple of different approaches. You know, some people kind of approach it as the job descriptions or at best a, a loose description of what people are wanting. And so, you know, if they're remotely qualified or not, they'll apply, they'll go for it. And then you've kind of got others who feel like if they meet the minimum requirements, they are the ideal candidate and cannot believe you would turn them down, even though there may be 3,000 other people who meet those same minimum requirements. So I guess I'm wondering, you know, how do you advise people to set themselves apart? Great, great question, Brock. First of all, do your homework. Do your homework. If you've got an interview um, with an organization or any kind of informational interview, you cannot not go on LinkedIn and understand this person's background or Google them and know about them and know something about them. Um, uh, I had a I had an interview yesterday with a, 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 a client that I'm about to speak for in the insurance industry. And five minutes before my call, I went online, looked at this woman's Um, LinkedIn profile, found out she lived near my sister uh, and in Baltimore, and she um, had been an editor and writer herself. And and actually, I could tell by her career, she didn't know a lot about about the the business she's she's editing. (laughs) And so I could immediately connect with her um, and, 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 and create a different kind of relationship than just being this rote sort of interview process, um, this, you know, rote kind of interview. And the, 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 the key point I'd make, and I'm watching this now, I'm seeing this happen. You can have great skills on, on, um, on paper, but um, I watch um, people get interviewed for jobs. I have this opportunity 
to overhear them. My wife works in a field where I've literally, because we're both working at home now, I can hear her involved in job interviews. And the, the one area where people fall down consistently is in, in assessing their own cultural fit is how do I, how would I fit in this organization that I'm applying to? Do I understand them enough? Have I done enough homework to understand how in those interviews to talk in ways, do they really care about team players? Do they um, really want um, people who are technology savvy, who are willing to learn? I'm open to learning constantly. You know, communicating things about yourself that you know that culture, that organization values. Does this make sense, Brock? It does. Yeah. And, and I, I always find that an interesting challenge, especially now in, in I don't know if this is a caveat to that or not. I've seen situations where people do that research, but then lock on so so hard to what they think that means that they don't realize how much they're missing the mark. That's that's good. So um, I, by that, I take does that mean you think they're not listening to cues that are coming up? Um, yeah, it, it's like they they envision what it's like to work at this organization, which you know is good to do. You got to figure that out, but then lock into that so much that there there seems to be like no adjustment, or that they strive so hard to craft themselves as an ideal fit before they truly know what that that fit is. They only know what they imagine that fit to be. That they stake they stake out a position that makes them almost unemployable at that organization. And that's an extreme case, but you know, it's the extreme cases that stand out. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. And that what that's speaking to in my mind is when you're on that call or on that interview, you've got to be constantly listening to, you know, you think you're going down this Avenue and that's what they want. But then you hear them say, well, we want people who are, you know, continuous learners, but you know, but you have to deliver on time. You have to, um, you have to meet your deadlines. And so you better be able to pivot quickly and say, you know, and, and illustrate how you meet deadlines as well as continuously learn. Do you see what I mean? So uh, it's very much, I agree with you. It's very much learning and listening and being willing to adapt. And I don't mean lie, you know, or, you know, but you've got to be willing to hear what the, the, the client or the potential employer is saying. Um, and, and and adapt your your message to meet them because it's you're continuing it's a loop learning loop if you will you know you're hearing them you're learning because you, you do go in with certain assumptions and a bunch of them are going to be wrong uh, so those are some thoughts there excellent excellent well I wanted to shift gears just a, a little bit here because before we started recording you had used the term being a financial realist. And so I want to explore that a little bit. What, what did you mean by that term? Especially as it applies to like careers and job market. Sure. Uh, you know, I'll give you an example. There's certain careers and certain jobs um, or businesses you're going to launch that are, um, that have financial constraints that you've got to recognize. I'll give you an example. For me, I was a freelance business writer. Um, uh, Actually, after that consulting job, um, I became wrote a lot of articles for Inc. Magazine, <coughs> um, and for a period of time, and that was great when I was a single guy living in Boston, um, and you know, and I didn't have big income, you know, high income needs, 
And, but, you know, that's not going to work for raising a family in the suburbs of Boston, where the cost of living is extremely high. I had to be realistic about that and, and uh, again, adapt my career and move more into consulting. I had to go back. I went back and got my doctorate very late in life. I mean, relatively late in life in my mid, mid-career, which, again, allowed me to pivot and, and do things and write books and have affiliations at Harvard and MIT that... Um, I was never on the faculty in those schools, but I was a researcher in both places. Uh, but, but um, so that allowed me to to de- make, you know develop a career that paid more. Um, so what what really hurts is there's a, there's an example is you know you think you want to be a social worker, and you want to drive a BMW and live in a big house, you know, in an expensive place. That's not going to happen because of the, the 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 rate that social workers are paid. Sadly or a teacher for that matter. Now these fields are fabulous and they're they're just there can be a great careers, but you have to understand when you're thinking about making a choice for a career what the and what the salary opportunities are and and again what path you're headed down so that you don't look back later and say well I'm frustrated that I you know have this relatively limited income um but I didn't think through, you know, where that where that path was going to take me. Uh, so, so it's it's really being realistic about about what you what kind of money can be made, or even if you're starting a new business, you know, what is the tra- trajectory here, um, you know, for this for this business, and and how much money, what are the opportunities in this particular field. That strikes me as being particularly difficult for early career. You know, when you, you look around and what you see doesn't connect up. Like when we first go to college, you know, 18 or whatever, we probably don't have a strong sense on what any salaries are. And if we do, what that actually means when it comes to, you know, buying a house, raising a family and all that versus being single and 18. Uh, but it also strikes me that, you know, so we look at our parents and our parents are, you know, mid-career, making way more money, even if we were in the same field than we'd be making. Uh, We look around uh, at at television, you know, it it struck me that for years on sitcoms, the people seem to live about two pay grades above what they would actually be making. (laughs) And and it's pretty consistent across TV. You know, it's not, they they can't go too extravagant, but there's no way they live that way on whatever job it is they have. You know, the, you know, the classic example is friends. There's no way they could have afforded that the apartments where they were um, based on, you know, working in a coffee shop, but, and then, you know, you, of course you've got, you've got Instagram, you know, we're all comparing ourselves to everyone else's best life. And uh, yeah. So early career, how do you start kind of, you know, sussing that out to figure out, what could I expect, you know, from this field? And also, you know, entry-level career salaries are much different than than late career salaries. So even getting our heads around that, because, you know, if we look it up on the internet, we see this number that may be true, but we won't make for another 20 years. Right, right. No, good, good question. I think, I think, I think in your 20s, um, uh, there's, there's a, uh, there's a chapter in my book, Graduate to a Great Job that is called the passion hoax. 
And I think for people in their 20s, you know, the idea of following your passion, you can't know what your passion is. And you want to spend time in your 20s, not, I would say not worrying so much about um, what, what pay structure is in the career you're working on, the job you're working in. The most important thing in your 20s is really getting experience and not getting overloaded with debt. With, with school debt anymore that, 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 that's realistic. Um, where this does make a difference is, is that, frankly, if you're looking at additional education, thinking through and really asking questions about what that will, what, what those pay options are or opportunities are if I invest in this education. As long as you're not taking on more debt, you can just try a bunch of different fields and see what feels, first of all, most important is find out what you're good, pretty good at and what you like. Then before you make real long-term commitments, then be asking questions about, okay, what are the options here in terms of, hey, where did this kind of career go? And this is when these kinds of informational interviews can be helpful. If you're in a field, entry level, and you're kind of liking it, that's the time to have conversations, coffee or Zoom calls with people who are more experienced in that field and say, tell me about your experience. What's your advice to me? I'm thinking I kind of like this accounting business or, you know, uh, you know, this life insurance business. Uh, what's your advice to me about that? Where is this headed? What, what would be my options here? And doing research to get information about that. Let me give you a couple of examples. There's a few fields in the world today where you take on considerable debt, like a veterinary, a vet, an animal vet. Is, um, they, they, to go to veterinary school costs a lot of money, hundreds of thousands of dollars today. Unfortunately, the pay for vets is much lower than for medical doctors who take on a similar debt. And so vet, if you better love animals to death because you're not going to get rich as a veterinarian. You may find incredible satisfaction for other reasons, but if you follow that path, you know, you may or may not make it back. Same with getting a master's in social work. Where is that going to lead? You want to be doing some research to understand what that, what those options are. But at the same time, so balance the research or asking questions, having conversations with people who are further down a path you're looking at, but at the same time, just trying things. Don't get hung up on this. I got to know, you know, what kind of dollars I'm going to make 30 years from now if I take this job two years out of college. Just take the job and, and, and get experience and learn from it. Well, very good. Well, as we start um, wrapping up today, I did, did have a question. And I don't know if you have any data on this or not. I, I, it's just something I, I've often wondered that, you know, is it better to kind of be the big fish in the small pond or the small fish in the big pond, you know? So for like, if you want to be an actor and that's just the example that pops to mind, is it better to go to LA or New York where there's a lot more opportunity, but so much more competition versus going to say, you know, Omaha, which is less opportunity, but also a lot less competition. And that may be very individual and it may just work out best for certain people, but I was wondering if there was any, any data or anything you'd seen about it. I haven't seen any data. Um, I have young friends um, 
we're struggling actors in uh, in New York right now. So I, I'm familiar with that. Sometimes, unfortunately, you've got to go where the where the talent is. It, it is. It's that's very much a lifestyle choice. I do think with the current recent crisis, health crisis, that the appeal of smaller cities and more rural areas is actually going to increase. And there are people who are rethinking their lifestyle choice of living in a big city, uh, not, not only for health reasons, but for cost, cost reasons. Um, and that is gonna be very much a, uh, a, a personal choice about um, lifestyle. You know, I have a friend who just moved to Bend, Oregon, you know, and she was um, with her two young children and husband, and she was in Baltimore in a major city hospital as a major nursing role. And she, they chose a lifestyle um, decision to move to a smaller city. Now, obviously, there's less opportunity, professional opportunity for her as a high-level nurse working in cardiac intensive care, but um, they just adore the lifestyle in Bend, in Bend Oregon. And so it, it really is, that really is a personal choice, but if some, for some feels like acting in acting, you, you, you got to be where, where the, where the work is or where the people are, but you know, with the move to online stuff, I think that's also changing. That's going to be one of the changes we see. People can be more virtual in this new world. Um, but then we're going to have to see what happens when we come out of it, uh, when there is a vaccine and we start to, we'll never return to normal, but we return back to the new, the new normal, as people say, whatever that is. But it'll be a combination of the old ways of face-to-face -face relationships and the new online relationships. It'll be both and. It won't be either or. Yeah. Well, and, you know, when I was thinking acting is the first thing that popped in my head, you know, even not just location, but type of company, you know, for example, being a consultant at a small firm where you may be given much more responsibility early on versus joining one of the major firms where you probably have, you know, won't move up as quickly, but have much broader, more intense development. Um, kind of stumbling over words there. Right. Just... Oh, th those are great classic questions about do I take a job where I'm in a small organization where I get to do a lot more different things or do I go with a big firm where I'm, you know, put in a slot, but I may be trained. I also have that brand on my resume always, the the big fancy firm. Right. Um, and, and, and some great training. And those firms are now desperate for talent. So they are, if you're good, they're going to, give you a lot of benefits. So there are trade-offs. It's really a, a lifestyle choice. Um, and, a, and, a, and, and neither answer is wrong. It's really about personalities. I learned early on, I was not good in big organizations. I wouldn't do well inside CBS permanently. I could never, I would be very unhappy in a big company like that. Um, just not my, my personality. I'm more entrepreneurial, but that's just me. Right. Well, that's a that's a good thought that it, it you know there's no right wrong, um, either or, but it, it it is you are always looking for for what fits you best and what you can thrive in best. So, Brock, one clo maybe closing thought is really yeah. thinking about what um, knowing yourself. You know, this whole process of learning and really reflecting on what 
what matters to you, what you're good at and what you care about and what you like. So it's that continual in your 20s, 30s, 40s, it really goes on throughout your whole life, continually reflecting on what what you want, what makes you happy and where you situations where you can thrive and be productive. Because underlying all this is hard work. And, and I have no sympathy for people complaining about their careers when they're not, I don't know, they're busting their butt, you know, to make it work. Working into the night, you know, learning, maybe doing some time on weekends. You know, there's a work-life balance issue for sure, but you've got to be a hard worker. And that's a, that underlies all this, no matter what you do to be successful. Well, very good. Well, that seems like a, a good good advice point to end on here. Um, two final questions for, for you, David. Uh, one, where can people find you? And Thank then my, uh, well, I'll, I'll let you answer that one first. And I'll ask the second one. Sure. Um, my website, if you want to learn more about my work, is, is smartworkforcestrategies.com. All one word, smartworkforcestrategies.com. If you um, want to reach out to me and talk about a possible conversation. Uh, I'm particularly interested in talking to executives and managers. Um, I'm researching my next book called Building Tomorrow's Workforce in Today's Economy. Building Tomorrow's Workforce in Today's Economy. And I'm always looking to have conversations with managers and executives who want to reflect on the challenges they're facing and some of the solutions they've tried. So you can reach me at David at David DeLong, uh, David at smartworkforcestrategies.com, David at smartworkforcestrategies.com. Well, then final question, what would your ask be of the listener? How, how could they help you? Um, really, I'm, thank you. I'm always looking for people, for smart people who are leaders, really, who are in roles where they're struggling with the workforce issues, the talent issues, and how do we bring new technologies into our organization and what skills are needed in our business and how do we upskill our workforce? How do we reskill our workforce? What are we trying? If you have stories you want to tell me about things you've done, I'd be very interested in connecting about that. Um, I'm always trying to make this a two-way street. You know, I'm glad to share what I'm learning with you. I'm not just taking other people's time. And also, this is a good networking tip. You're always trying to do that. You're always looking for how you can help the other person, not just take their time. And I'm open, very open to conversations on the phone or Zoom um, about that, scheduling those calls. Um, uh, I would, I would, that, would be a, that would be a great help as I do the research for my book in the next um, six months. Well, David, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for being on today. Thank you, Brock. It was really a pleasure.